0: Welcome to the Gentleman Ultra podcast. Uh, Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Frank Panisi, who's the General Manager of Football Operations for the Melbourne Storm Rugby League Club. So, Frank, thanks for joining us.
1: My absolute pleasure, Frank.
0: Yep. So, um, people are probably thinking, why is a a GM of a rugby league club doing an Italian football podcast? Uh, So, the reason I wanted to share your story and that of the Melbourne Rugby League Club, is for many believe they're the, the standard, I guess, when it comes to front office alignment, off-field culture. Um, you know, no one's perfect, everyone makes mistakes, but um, creating the environment and the accountability and the leadership that plays a huge part in the club's success, um, I believe can be applied to any sporting organ- organisation. So I thought you'd be a, a great guest to have on. Um, so, Frank, for those that don't know, yeah, give us a bit of a background about yourself and what a, a day-to-day day in the life of a GM of football operations looks
1: like? Yeah, certainly, Frank. I, uh, I'm in my 15th season here at, at the Storm in in a role they call general manager of football. So basically, um, the football department, which is a, obviously a big department of, a, of our football club, you've got finance, you've got membership, you've got commercial, you've got administration, which is all headed up by the CEO, who then answers to the board. Uh, so I'm basically look after the that the football arm of it, um, alongside with the head coach. So um, to put it uh, as an overview, uh, Craig Bellamy is head coach. He basically looks after the team from a week-to-week point of view in terms of getting the team ready, playing. uh, Next week we'll play the Roosters. All his – well, not – all of it, but the vast majority of his time and attention is focused on beating the Roosters next week. Um, I look beyond that. I look beyond um, what's happening in two weeks, three weeks, six months, and what's happening next season, um, everything outside. So what we try to do is just the head coach, what he's really good at is coaching the football team so that the more we can take off the head coach role, I basically look after everything else. And we, we you know, we work in tandem. Um so you know, it, obviously, there's a there's a high degree of communication, you know, that, but again, is knowing each other's focus. His focus is to win the game this coming weekend. Mine is to everything after everything else. So, in a nutshell, that's there's a lot more to it, but that that's a that's a summary of the role. Yeah. So you came
0: uh, when you finished your career, you moved into like a development role in New South Wales Rugby League and working with John Quayle, who's a highly very. Very well-known sporting administrator in Australia, probably arguably one of the best. Um, and But after that, in the academy area or development area, I guess, um, you you moved across to rugby and that was in Europe and South Africa. Yeah, what experiences did those, did you bring back to your career nowadays?
1: Yeah, look, um, you mentioned that I, I did get in the role of the um, Coach Development Academy at Narrabeen part of the New South Wales Rugby League. I was there for six years. And I was six, spent six wonderful years, uh, both from an enjoyable point of view, but, but really set a, a fantastic basis um, and foundation for me for where I am today because the, the job was very much multi, multi-skilled. multi It wasn't, we, you know, there was as the name suggests, was coaching and development, but there was a lot of coaching that was coaching broad-based kids, just your everyday kids in, in schools and in camps. We did a lot of elite training with the elite players. We, we we coached the coaches. You know, we did a lot of administration things like at Royal Easter Show and halftime entertainment. So it was a. It, I had six years of doing that where I just had a, a, a high degree of different skill. So my, so I was able to, um, and which has really come to help me as years gone by. After the academy, I actually, then I went to a club, Manly. I was there for a long time, and and again looking after their junior rep and coaching at the top end so I started um, I suppose narrowing my focus towards the coaching Um, and then as you said I I jumped over to um, um, Rugby Union it was just um, I started when I was at Manly we I got involved with the the Wallabies through Rob McQueen just exchanging ideas and and I met a fellow by the name of Tin Lane who was his assistant and Tim got me involved and ended up going over to France for two years coaching. Um, I did a bit with South Africa Springboks as a consultant and and ended up with three years in England before I came back. So it was a wonderful experience. And and you mentioned someone um, pretty important to me, John Quayle. John was an unbelievable mentor to me. Um, And I still speak to John every now and then, Um, you know, John was the CEO, and he was, you know, when I was, he was CEO of the the New South Wales Rugby League when I was at the academy, and he was just a great role model, just a great mentor. But I remember having a conversation with him when I left the academy about chasing the dream, and in terms of, he said, if you've got a passion, you got to, you got to, you got to go for it, and that was coaching at that stage in my career, and so I gave away that that job I was doing, but he just said, you just, you know, while you ever got a passion, just you know, follow it through, and um, yeah, so I think that was important, and the the coaching rugby union, I suppose, was just left field. But it was just uh, it was it was it was a challenge because I wanted to challenge myself, go to a completely new sport that I, I had no background in. Um, I never played it as a kid, and I, I didn't didn't follow it too closely, to be honest. Uh, it was a challenge to going to a new sport. It was challenged going to a new country uh, like France um, where they didn't even speak the language. Uh, so I had to learn a new language, had to learn a new culture, had to learn a new game, um, and probably where I was with my family was the right time too. Was just for us to experience something different. So the the life experience I, I experienced in Europe for those five years had was was just tremendous. And again, it's everyone's got a journey in, in their life, and, and you learn different things. You make mistakes. I mean, we had some the the success of the two teams that I was involved in was was very much up and down. Um, I experienced that. Um, I experienced relegation in England, you know, something we don't experience in this country. It's just, uh, you know, I was at a club that went from, you know, qualifying for Europe in the European competitions to the next year getting relegated.
0: So you moved across and you did a bit with the South African national team. What was, And that was post-apartheid. Um, that would have been an incredible experience, given what had happened in the past and, and bringing that team together. Um, what was that like off the field to
1: work in that environment? Well, I had two experiences in South Africa. Well, the first one was way back in 93 when I was at the New South Wales Rugby League Academy. Uh, it was just, a, I think, a year or two after apartheid had um, been dissolved. And the, basically the world had opened its arms up to South Africa after basically um, you know, shutting them out for years because of apartheid. So, And one of the things the Australian government offered uh, South Africa was... Um, it was, uh, it was Aussie sports in schools, so in primary schools. So it was, they, they wanted to send a program where they sent Australian coaches over to work with South African um, coaches in, in the townships uh, on sports. So they selected four sports. They selected two sports that were very common to the, the people in the townships, being soccer and uh, Nepal. And they also wanted to. Cons- select like two brand new sports that was completely foreign to them but and that was baseball and rugby league. So I was, uh, uh, I was selected to be the the Australian rugby league representative for that Aussie sports and project. So we spent, uh, first time was six weeks in 93, uh, about this time it was 93 and October, November uh, 93, just working with teachers uh, trying to get the game of rugby league and it was that was incredibly rewarding because it was, you know, these are the people that had been suppressed by apartheid, and suddenly, there we are eighteen months later, we we are shown, you know, we giving them education and on coach education. It, it was just tremendous. It was just so rewarding and satisfying. You know, it was um, um, it was start rugby league was starting to get a bit of a, a foothold, not not a strong one, but start, um, and then it was just a combination of some probably not strong administration in South Africa itself, but probably more so is when the um, Super League ARL A- A- war then hit in 95, only two years after, that, everything was thrown out. all the plans had been thrown out the window. And then again, I went back in 2003 with, with, with South Africa Springboks, which was completely different. You're working with, you know, the Springboks, the, the team of South Africa. And, you know, that's, um, it, it it was an interesting time in their, in their development um, because they were still... Uh, they were coming to groups with uh, integrating everyone. So it was, um, I was treated unbelievably well by, you know, by everyone involved, but it was a, it was a challenging time for South Africa, to be honest with you, in terms of how they integrated um, all their population players in with it, with the same team. And, um, you yeah, know, I think, you know, I think where they are now that, you know, obviously a lot doing a lot better than they were probably in 2003, but it was again, part of that journey, just a, an amazing experience because it was there was so much more than rugby it, there was a lot of these off-field field, you know the cultural awesome. issues and where they come from how they were brought up it, it was fascinating yeah. you know, just it sounds like that.
0: they're all all like building blocks for the foundations to to set you up for what's happening now yeah you know, yeah like, they,
1: they, a lot of them were carrying a lot of baggage from all those years ago and it was kind of it was um it was hard for a lot of them hard to let go and um, I think the generations are changing over there now and it's, it's completely different. But, um, yeah, it, it, it was certainly an incredible experience.
0: Mm-hmm. So you, you arrived at Melbourne Storm in 2007, is that right?
1: Yeah, just after they won the premiership in 2007. So as I said, we uh, um, had a season to run... Um, at Northampton Saints, um, but we got relegated, so um, no need make, for a defensive coach, no need <laughs> a defensive <laughs> coach when you get relegated. And a fair few <laughs> of us got shown there, so um, I went to, back to France for a little while. I consulted for a rugby union called called Brieve. I lived on a uh, a country, a French country farmhouse for a couple of months. Um, uh, it was, it was great, you know, we had no TV, hardly an internet, it was just a uh, uh, and then yeah, this role came up, so I was asked uh, would I be interested in, and, um, yeah, and I, and I arrived here in November 2007 and, yeah, a couple of early de- hiccups early on. <laughs> it's been a wonderful 15 years.
0: Yeah, so transitioning across to Italian football, so I, know, I don't know how much of Italian football you do follow, but you know at any level, regardless of the organisation, um, how important the off-field is and how important like alignment and identity is with the, the, the front office, the ownership, um, the coaching staff. Um, how important are all those foundations? And what did you find when you first turned up at Melbourne? I'm guessing it was different to what it is nowadays.
1: Oh, yeah, well, yes and no. There's, there's a lot of differences, but there was also a lot of similarities. I think, you know, I spoke about my own foundations and, um, you know, in my professional life when I first went to the academy and how it set me up for where I am today, um, clubs are the same. So when this club was formed in 1998 or the back end of 97, you know, they had some wonderful leaders, you know, especially in John Reba, who was the founder of the club and the, the initial chairman. And, and the club was built on really strong foundations. You know, they had a, it was very much because everyone was imported into Melbourne, both playing and uh, coaches and, and football staff, knowing that they they really generated a very strong family Feel uh, field of the club. And, and that hasn't changed. That's, that's, but that was so those foundations were set early. It was a club based on doing everything at the absolute best, like don't be second best, be the best. You know, John coming from the Broncos had that mentality, you know, because the Broncos were joined the competition 10 years before that. And in a, in a market when they, they want to do things, they want to do things differently, but be the best. So there's always been that, strong desire to succeed and, and be the very best or be your very best. So that was said early, Frank. And, and I think those things have never changed from the club. So it's like, you know, it's, uh, I tell this story a lot. My, my, my father at 87 years, 86 years of age, he still builds, would you believe? Um, not not as much as he did, but he's always been a, a massive advocate on on how the foundations of a house is so important because you know whatever happens in years, if the foundations are strong, it'll take any storms or whatever hits the house or whatever. So, and football clubs are no different. So, found the foundations here were really strong from day one. So, and um, in all the, you know, certain downtimes we've had and and, and, and crisis and whatever. I think because those foundations have been strong through those early days, I think that's kept us intact. And you know, um, so when I got here at the end of 7 you know, they just won a premiership. But there was a couple of things really evident back then. It was a lot smaller staff, and the staff's grown enormously since. But you know, there was a very strong leadership from the players that was really evident. Probably where I'd been in rugby union overseas, I didn't see that. I, I saw. Um, a lot of good individuals, but I didn't see them as strong as a strong group leading. So that was really evident um, and a strong leader in, in Craig Bellamy, you know, whatever. So it was, and like anything else, the team has just won the premiership. Um, you can tell they're built on strong foundations and, and there wasn't too much wrong with it. It was only, so I think sometimes when people come in, in those roles, they try to do things their own way rather than assess the situation. and say, you know what, um, they're going okay. How can we make? How can I? How can I? In my role make it better, rather than trying to change it because I, because I'm new. I'm the new general. I want to change. So many people take it where the coaches, managers want to change things, which suits them, but should be the other way around. So I, 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 first thing I did was I interviewed every single staff member when I first started, just to get a feel of them, their their place in the in the club, um, where the club is, and how can be better? And then we, so we took, and, and we've always had that mentality is how can we be better rather than just changing something for the sake of changing, how can we be better? So I think that's, that's something that, you know, we, we started very early.
0: How hard is it to drive um, like those standards in that direction? Um, if you've got a playing group, for example, that aren't buying in or if there's people that are outliers, I guess that, Sort of don't want to adhere to that standard. Like there's a few teams in Italy um, that are always there or thereabouts, but never seem to quite make that transition from, you know, a top five or a top six finish across to a, a scudetto or a championship-winning team, um, and they always look to just be missing that that little extra two percent. Um, yeah, how difficult is it to drive and push that? And if if there's squad members or staff even, that aren't on the bus, so to speak. Um, how hard is that to implement and how hard is that to change and to to weed out any of those problems?
1: Oh, tough, tough. And I think it, you know, gets back to um, your recruitment or your players and your staff first. If you get that wrong, mm-hmm. it's going to make it harder down the track. Um, yeah, you can, you know, and, and it's in the modern world, you know, with contracts and everything else, it, it's it's a lot harder to move people on, whether they're players or staff, than it used to be. So, that being the case, is what you do at the other end, recruitment, just becomes absolutely paramount. And, and, and you still, are, and we still do, you're still going to what we call recruitment errors. You know, both at staff and players. But hopefully, what we do two things. What, hopefully, there's not too many of those because if you have too many of those that means you got to look at your recruitment people and you can got to look at your recruitment process. Um, and if you do make a recruitment error, whether it's a player or a staff, but especially a player, make sure like you're not going to sign a bloke for a multi-year contract on good money if you're not sure about him and suddenly you're stuck with him and you go, shit, how are we going to get rid of him? Yeah. So there, I, I can't stress the importance of recruiting good people to your organisation and yeah. Uh, and a lot of it starts with character. I um, mean, obviously, our, our recruitment team, we've got a really, uh, you know, uh, very lucky and fortunate to have a very good recruitment team. Um, their first – what they first look at is talent, which is obvious. So you, you're not going to just recruit someone that's got no talent. They're going to have a, a level of talent. So they look at all the metrics, all the, all the analytics. You know, they've got – if you walk into their, their office, they've got – It's too much for me, all the metrics they got. So, But but that's the first step. But then to get over the line and signed, it's all about character. Character is important. And I think people misinterpret character being a good citizen. Yeah, that's part of it. That's part of the character. Um, But it's a character of things like how competitive are they? How much do they really want to win? How much do they really want to improve and be better? How coachable are they? Mm.
0: Um, that's a big one, isn't it? Like huge you can have that talent, but if you're not going to take it on board, the feedback you're being exactly given, and, and how, playing staff or you know those one-on-one sessions. What's
1: exactly what's, and also how are they going to buy into what you you, you, you believe in? So, yeah. so the, the first part of that, the talent with all the metrics, that's quite easy to um, measure because you know whether it's how fast those, or strong they are or. Mm what's their stats from the games that's easy that's visible you can compare players but how do you measure character how do you how do you value character and that that's a lot harder mm-hmm. so um that's the part where we spend a fair bit of time and and again we've made mistakes over the years and we'll continue to make mistakes but hopefully we haven't had too many but more important i think we've got some ones who's probably metrics and talent probably don't aren't great or in comparison to other players but They've got such strong characteristics that we know they're going to they're going to be good for us. So, and look, and then if you do get a recruitment error, Frank, it's um you got to you got to either um, whatever tactics you use, you got to somehow get them on the bus and going in the right direction. You know, and 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 there's been proven over the years with us and other places where some players with maturity and being here a while or the penny drops. They they do change, so you've got to give them time as well. Um, but they do also does come a point where you make the decision this ain't working, you know, and that's when you have the tough conversations, and whether it's with the player and or the staff member or the player and the agent, and saying, this I think his future's better off somewhere else." And um, um, that's that's important, you know. That's a lot harder to do, as I said in, in the modern in the modern world, but you just you just can't say he's here for four years, was going to put up with another two years of this. It's just either he changes or we've got to do something. So, yeah, yeah it's knowing it's, it's it's knowing when. So, again, it, it, it's all a process, and I, and I think that's it, but it's a big one. But if you get your recruitment right, Frank, geez, it makes it a lot easier.
0: And you have turnover, obviously, in the NRL as opposed to Italian football, there is a salary cap. But um, turnover-wise, um, we've seen players leave the club and perform yes or no whether they perform better or not. Um, we've seen players leave your club, but you always seem to have that stability in like key areas and key positions. Is that an important thing when you're when you're talking about recruitment and obviously character and player retention?
1: It's enormous. It's 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 um, well you know certainly the last twelve years. It's something that Craig and I have. Um, we don't want to lose any play, so We want to keep all of them, but. We know that's impossible with the salary cap, and the better they get, and the more success you have, you're not going to able to a afford them. And b is that you know they're like a Nico Hines last year was where we're going to play him. You know he wants to play every week. So, but what we do um, prioritise is that there are certain positions on a footy field that we just need, and we need the very best. Um, and now the same our, in
0: football, the same in any yeah, sport, really. Yeah,
1: it's just certain, but then they're just and. And then after that, well, then we we'll know there's going to be some fallout, but then we'll try to keep as many players as we can. The other area too, if they're outside of that um, um, spine in our position, those key positional players, there's also leadership's a big thing. We we don't like, you know, I'll give you a perfect example. Christian Welsh is a player that doesn't play in those spine positions, but he's a very strong, influential leader around the group. So leadership, um, uh, if I, because not every player's got, Leadership, but when you've got some players that have got some definitive leadership skills, well, then they take a priority as well. So I think it's our retention is based on key positions and and good leaders. And
0: I was just going to touch on that next. Um, You guys have sort of been known at your club for having like emerging leaders come through, and someone like Christian Welsh. like Ryan Pappenhausen, those guys, you can, you, can, you can visibly see them taking on more leadership across the last 12 to 18 months, two years, given the turnover. Um, those, that, that leadership and that definition of that leadership, um, how important is it for uh, uh, not only there to be a club captain, but to be a, a base underneath those guys um, to be ready to step into that that void when they when the captain or cop captain does
1: depart it's it's very important part of our, our leadership program because um and we were guilty like any any other, any other organization over the years we just put a leadership cap on a, on a player we thought well he 's been the x many of years you 're a leader bang there's there's a captain mm. but leadership is a skill just like passing or tackling or you know scoring goals Um swerving, it's a skill. And if it's a skill, you've got to practice that skill and you've got to educate the skill, you've got to teach that skill. So, yes, some players show more leadership skills than others, just like they do with all the other skills of, of the game. But you just can't throw them into a, into a group and say, now you're a leader. And I think we did that for too long. So it probably happened with us is that um, it was about 2014 where we were very fortunate We had three of the best leaders that I've seen. At playing level, and Cameron Smith, Billy Slater, and Cooper Cronk, but the, that they were that they were so dominant as leaders and so influential as leaders. It also had a downside to it that what what happened with the others is that there was a big gap between them and the rest of the group in terms of leadership. So all they carried so much responsibility and influence on the group, and as good as they were, but it was having a adverse effect on them because they were carrying an, a big burden. You know that's well, two of them were having kids and had kids at the time and and everything else and they are playing State of Origin Australia. There was a lot, so we were putting a lot of pressure on these three players. And the other thing too is that we looked ahead and, and, and while well, I'm that sorry, then the rest of the group kept saying you could just you could just feel it. They weren't saying it, it's Ned, or well, Cooper, or so they say,
0: just stand around and just waiting, essentially yeah. waiting for them to work. Yeah, so, on the field or off the field, you weren't. Yeah, because they were running, and
1: so basically the gap became that big. So. So the other thing, too, we, we looked ahead to where we are now, you know, and said, well, when these three retire, who's going to be the leaders of this club? And it was scary. We looked around the room. And we thought, we're in a bit of trouble here. So well, that's when we came up with the emerging leaders is we've got to somehow find out the best leaders. And the emerging leaders program is basically teaching and giving experience to players about leadership before we put him in the leadership group, so it'd be like a, you know, it's um getting a mentoring, kid out
0: almost like a mentoring
1: program. Yeah, it is. It's like you know, if I use it in football terms, you get a a, a good young talent player and you put him straight in straight in the first team. You know, you you you've got to teach him something before you put him in, in there. So yes, and then we you know we did again. I think Nick Maxwell from Collingwood AFL had just retired that year and. Um, he kind of speak to the, the players once and we really liked his story. We liked the way he went about him. So, And he was a leader of a, of a big club here in, in Melbourne. And he was a self-proclaimed a leader that was taught to be a leader rather than a natural leader. So we put two and two together and said, you know what, I think he can run our emerging leaders program. So, you know, for years up to 2020, he basically ran our emerging leaders. So he just worked on the leaders and taught them everything about being a leader and, um, and and then the best of those go into our senior leaders. So it's just like, like any other pathway, we develop an emerging lead. Some don't all get through, Frank. Some put up the hand and say, This is not for me. Beautiful. That's the other beauty about the program. And the others get the confidence to be a leader and and then suddenly when they become a senior leader, they've they've had some training for it.
0: And at the top of that, speaking of leadership, good segue, but at the, t- the top of that tree, um, you've got Craig Bellamy, who's, you know arguably one of the greatest coaches of all time, especially in particular in the modern era. Um, What role does that stability and and that leadership play across the the club? So, you you know, like in Italian football, you see turnover of coaches. You know, we've had sides this year have three and four coaches just in one season. Um, How difficult do you think that would be from, you know, in your role and on the opposite end of the spectrum? Um, how great is it to have someone who's been in his role since 2003 and won multiple, you know, what, four premierships, five minor premierships, top of my head, if my son reminds me, and a couple of the World Club challenges. Um, yeah, like, essentially, that stability, how, how big a part does that play on the club and on the team? And on the opposite effect, how much do you imagine... Uh, how much chaos would three or four managers like if you could imagine working for three or four coaches in one season what would that do for a club
1: oh I'd love to answer first part of the question you know the stability we've had here uh, not just with Craig but uh, we've kept a lot of staff for a long time here um it's had a tremendous impact mm-hmm. and influence on on the on the success of the club and I think uh, especially you know you mentioned the word before turnover that's it doesn't matter what sport whether you in Italian football or uh, AFL or National Rugby League is that the turnover of players in the modern game compared to 20 years ago, 40 years ago was great. It's just, you know, you just... Um, so when you're losing so many players and over a few years period, a lot of players, is your stability at, at, at the coaches and the football staff in is vital because they... You know, that so, we're very fortunate. So, you know, I think Craig speaks for himself. I don't need to sing his praises, but we've got people in our system where have been here like I've been here 15 years. I've got you know, we've got our well being staff, they've both been here longer than me. Our weight strength coach has been here longer than me. Um, the assistant coaches, two of them played here and were life members here that came back and became assistant coaches. The other two coaches uh, are sons of who've been here since they were young. Um, we've that's okay.
0: Like, it's okay to turn staff over,
1: yeah, exactly. At the
0: right time is that, that correct? Am I wrong in assuming that
1: it is? Uh, as long as it's, 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 um, it's, and each year we probably have one to two new staff, some years done, but it's when you have those multiple changes, you know, four one year and another four the next year and five the next year.
0: Because yeah, in Italy, they bring their whole staff with them, so you well, know, it's a great they,
1: point. You that's a great one we can lead on to is that you know, that, that one day and hopefully not for a while, What's it's going to happen is that, you know, Craig's going to finish and, you know, we've already spoken that about it as a club and it will be my role at the moment is to, to keep as many of the key staff here past Craig's contract. So when the new coach comes in, he won't be given if a coach comes in, well, I want my whole staff. Well, he's not going to get the job. Now, of course, being a coach, you're going to allow him to bring in certain people, but, We've got that much DNA here of people that have been here a long time and are good at their job and they're good people. Why would we move them on? It gets back to when I'm, one of the first things we spoke about is when I interviewed the um, staff is that there's nothing wrong with it. Well, why are we changing? Why change? Because because I come in as general manager, well, same with the new head coach. So, mm-hmm. so again, he's, he's going to do things a little bit differently, but we don't want him to come in and completely wipe the staff because he wants to bring his new people because he's worked with them before. Now, again, if, if we hadn't had success, that's probably the way to do it. But if you've had sustained success for a while, the idea is to keep all this DNA, all this, you know, and um, we're not going to keep them all, but if we can keep a large part of it, he's going to make the next coach's job a lot easier because he's got all this intellect and DNA and um, IP that is just valuable. So I think stability at not just the head coach, but and the head manager is people around him um, because then they can pass on to the players, the DNA about the place, the history about the place, the values and everything else it, because they've lived it and they've been here a long time. And, it, and, and it, as a leader, it doesn't matter how good you are, you can't do it on your own. It's impossible.
0: And is that what, that's a skill that, you know, I've just from very far from watching Melbourne, that's something that I feel like, you know, and other people have probably touched on it and you've touched on it in the, in the past Craig Bellamy's ability to now sort of step away and not realise that he has to be in 100%, control of everything 100%, and that can apply to any manager, whether it's 100%, football, 100%. AFL, rugby league. Yeah,
1: hundred percent. And and also, is like you, if you want to drive values and standards, everything else, again, you need you need the more people you got driving it. It's like the momentum is stronger. And then, and then you got your player leaders do it with the players, and then suddenly it's just this wave. Of, everyone's relentless doing the same thing. But if it's one, if if I'm, if me and Craig are the ones that's pushing about all our standards and values, and the staff, you know, not to lie about it, we're not going to get the same success. So that's why you, you know, just the more people you get around you and your staff that believe in what you're doing and, and understand it, and they can help drive it because Craig can't be in the gym when the players are lifting weights all the time, you know, he can't be watching every part of the training field when they train, you know, he needs other coaches looking at different things. He can't be at him, you know, around the place. So it's the more people we've got around driving our standards and values. It, it makes it a lot easier.
0: And that's where those standards come in. Right. So that's funnily enough. It's on my fridge here. My kids see it every day. The standards you walk past. Other standards you accept, and that's Correct. drummed into them, and it's it's a famous Melbourne, you know, yeah. slogan. Whether it yeah. um, came from a another coach there, but yeah, that standards it's it's incredibly high
1: across it the. It is board. because you know we can set the standards, and, and so this is what our standards are, and then down in the gym, our coach uh, strength coach just he doesn't pull him up on it. He's more or less saying, "Well, I'm happy with those standards," and but he's not because he's signed up for it and he believes in it. So yeah, it's um. In and out, you know, so you had to ask me what's this, what's the secret of a strong culture is good people in a nutshell. Yep. The more good people you are, who are good at their job and believe what you do, the more chance they, and that that's, you know, again, again, comes back to that recruitment. And then when you're good, get good people looking after and nurturing and developing them and, and make sure you don't you lose them. Yep. And
0: they're coming across to any organization or sporting code for that matter.
1: Exactly. Cool.
0: All right. Thanks, Frank, for that. I know we've got other commitments, so we've got to run. We could talk for a little bit longer. But, yeah, we'll have to have you back on next time to find out how a good Italian boy ventured into rugby league. <laughs> I'd,
1: might, I'd enjoy that, actually. No, <laughs> I'd I, I enjoy that. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely.
0: All right. Thanks very much for your time, Frank.